G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Coming up today on The Story. I was always brought up with the idea that, you know, naughty children should be disciplined. And all I was seeing was naughty behaviour, which was, oh, my son is having a meltdown about nothing. He must be very naughty and I shall have to put him on the naughty step or the naughty corner. Well, of course, that didn't work because that's not what was going on in his brain. His brain was, I'm dead and dying and, and not coping. You know, I'm reacting the only way I know how. The Story. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, last time, Eric Scadabo spoke to author Cecily Patterson about her life journey and the events that shaped her into the writer she is today. This time, we're going to focus on one particular book she wrote and the events in her life that led to her writing it. It's called Love, Tears and Autism, an Australian mother's journey from heartache to hope. Cecily will honestly share about some of the struggles she's gone through being the parent of a child diagnosed with Autism Spectrum Disorder, or ASD. Once again, Cecily is chatting with Eric Scadabo. Cecily Patterson, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you on once again, and we should say that, once again, you're joining us from Sydney. Yes, I am, yep. And this book, Love, Tears and Autism, this is your most personal book, is that right? Yes, I think this is my most personal book. In fact, I'm sure of it, because basically it's all about me. My son, who's now grown up, he says, Mom, I made you famous. And I said, (laughs) he said, you've written a book all about me. I said, no, darling, it's all about me. So it really is. It's all about my reactions and what I did and how I felt and, and things after my son was diagnosed with autism. Okay, well, let's find out about that. But first, can you give us some of the background or the events that led up to this part of your life? Yeah, so I had... I had two children and I was pregnant with the third. And I noticed that my second child, who was a little boy, he just wasn't hitting the same sort of milestones as his older sister. She was four years older. They were born a week apart, four years apart. Mm-hmm. And we'd get to the same sort of family gatherings and, you know, I'd think, oh, when, when she was one, she was doing this, but look, he's not. Mm. And when she was two, she was doing this and look, he's not at all. And so I started to have some questions about what was going on with him. And the the biggest thing for us was that he wasn't speaking. And Mm. I was really concerned about the not speaking. I also thought he was a bit naughty, but that sort of didn't factor into my, oh, we have a problem here. So I went to speech pathologists and doctors. And after a lot of palaver and a lot of waiting around and uh, quite a few different disasters, really, where he ran away and got lost, um, Mm. and it was just really difficult to handle we ended up with a diagnosis of autism. And so I had this three-year-old who was almost impossible to handle because he was throwing six to seven meltdowns a day, Mm. major meltdowns, meltdowns that you couldn't head off and you didn't know what was going on. I had now a six-year-old daughter who was reacting with a great deal of stress and then I had a baby as well because I was pregnant, that pregnancy came about and life was pretty impossible. Oh, wow. Yeah, a lot going on all at that time. Yes, it was. There was a lot going on. And did you know anything about autism spectrum no, disorder? No, I had no idea about it. The only thing I connected with autism was the movie Rain Man mm-hmm. and Dustin Hoffman repeating things over and over. That was all I knew. And so I did what I always do, which is to research frantically mm-hmm. on the internet. 
and discovered that actually I knew nothing about it at all and that, yeah, he did have autism and um, he was showing quite a few signs. And you know what? It's really interesting. Then I didn't pick any of the signs, but looking back, I can pick all of them. Hmm. And I can pretty much walk into a playgroup now or like a public area where there are children playing and I can go, you should watch that kid. That kid definitely, Mm. I'd investigate that one. Like the signs are all there if you know what they are. Now, if I understand it right, it's a spectrum. So some children will have more symptoms and some will have less. Is that kind of how it works? Yeah, yes. Uh, It's a hard thing to think about being on a spectrum. They say you meet one child with autism and you've met one child with autism, as in they're all very different. Mm -hmm. So some people have a lot of co-occurring conditions with autism. So Mm -hmm. there might be a kid who has autism and also epilepsy and also a learning disorder. So things pop up in crops. Oh, okay. So people go, oh, that child's autistic, but then they're also seeing a whole variety of, say, five other conditions that are going with that. And they're thinking, oh, that's autism. Mm -hmm. But I think at its core, autism is basically a communication disorder. Okay, the uh, dictionary definition I have here is autism, a condition present from early childhood, characterized by great difficulty in communicating and forming relationships with other people, and in using language and abstract concepts. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. What does that mean in reality? In reality, what it means is a child with autism tends to be very direct and concrete about what they want. Mm-hmm. A neurotypical, which is like, you know, most people's brains look a little bit like a city street map mm-hmm. where there's a couple of main highways, but there's lots of little interconnecting roads. So there's lots of ways that people can make connections between things and between each other. But a kid with autism, may their brain may look like, uh, say, a railway line where you've got, say, four or five major lines. They only interconnect at certain intersections and that's it. So they'll tend to be very focused on the thing which they want or the thing which they like. So, for example, when my little boy was three, he was totally focused on Thomas the Tank Engine, mm. and you could not get him off that track. Ha, 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 that's a pun. <laughs> so he, he was all about Thomas the Tank Engine, and if you tried to get him off it, it, it was literally like he derailed. He, would, mm. he couldn't cope. He didn't know how to connect, how to make a connection to anything else, and he would just have a meltdown. So that's when the meltdowns would occur when something was out of the ordinary or something that would get him metaphorically off the tracks? Yes. Because he wants to do things in a certain way. Is that kind of the way he's wired? He needed to do things in a certain way. He didn't just want to. It was, I must do this in a certain way and I must finish it in a certain way and I cannot be distracted from this or my life is over. I've often said, you know how when you take a kid for a walk Mm -hmm. along the road and you get to something which they can walk along, like, say, a little wall or a a pole that's, you know, on its side, Mm -hmm. and kids love to walk along things. And the narrower it is, the more exciting it is, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And so all of us have what I call a little wall that we walk along in life. Now, some of us, our walls are very broad and they're easy to walk on and we don't often fall off. Mm -hmm. And for autistic kids, it tends to be that the wall is so narrow that they can't balance and they're constantly falling off and they don't know how to get back on. Mm. And so that's what I thought it would feel like for my son, who had this tiny little narrow wall of life that he could balance on. This was where he felt comfortable, Mm -hmm. but one wobble and he was off and, you know, everything was done. So for you personally, this is all new to you. 
how did yeah, this yeah. impact your <laughs> I had life? No clue what was going on. Yeah, and and I was always brought up with the idea that you know naughty children should be disciplined, and all I was seeing was naughty behaviour, which was, mm-hmm. oh, my son is having a meltdown about nothing. You know, there must be he must be very naughty, and I shall have to put him on the naughty step or the naughty corner. Well, of course that didn't work because that's not what was going on in his brain. His brain was. I'm dead and dying and, and not coping. Mm. You know, I'm reacting the only way I know how. And it was really interesting. I had an experience which made me appreciate all of this so much more. We were about three years into all of this, and it was just, my life was so hard. Mm-hmm. And my parents said, let's take the kids for an afternoon, and you and Andrew can go out. So we went out, and we said, let's go and see a movie. So we went to see, oh, it must have been a new Star Wars movie. It was so loud and mm. so sort of action-y, and it was all this stuff coming at me in the theatre, and I felt really overwhelmed. And then we went into the city, and we walked around, and I looked at all the people, and I thought, there's so many people here, there's millions of people, and I felt really overwhelmed by that. Mm-hmm. And everywhere we went, there was just so much and so quick, and so it was all too much for me. Mm-hmm. And we got to Dimmick's in the city, and I looked at all the books that there were in the world, and I thought, I can't do anything else. I can't take in any more information. And I literally had to look at the carpet and said, Andrew, you have to take me home. I can't process any more information. And then I realized this is how my son feels almost every day, but about a tenth of the information that that I was having. He can't process all of this information, all of this novelty coming at him all the time. And he constantly feels like he just needs to go on his bed and scream and, and cry, make it all stop. It's very important that you understand what's going on in his brain so that you can help him. Because every time he fails, what it does in his brain is says, I can't possibly do anything. There's no competence being built. And with competence, as we all know, comes confidence. And Mm -hmm. if you have no confidence, you won't even try. So what we had to do was basically break every single thing in life down into tiny, tiny achievable steps for him. Mm-hmm. So if he could achieve happily doing, you know, a quarter of what most other people did without even thinking, then he would become more confident mm-hmm. and more competent and be more willing to try new things. So it was just a matter of saying in every single thing of life, even the things you think shouldn't cause anybody any problems, going, okay, divide this into 10 for each step, then divide each step into four, and let's work on those tiny, tiny bites constantly one after the other. You're listening to The Story. Our guest today is once again author Cecily Patterson, and today we're focusing on her book Love, Tears and Autism, an Australian mother's journey from heartache to hope. Next, we're going to find out more about what it's like to be a parent of a child diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. All that and more is coming up when we return. The Story. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401 132 888. Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax and this is The Story. Today, our guest once again is author Cecily Patterson from Sydney. Today, we're focusing on her book, Love, Tears and Autism, an Australian mother's journey from heartache to hope. Now, here's more of Eric Scadabo's conversation with Cecily, who's been giving us insights into what it's like being a parent of a child diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. 
So what would be an example of a success story for him? Well, going to school, okay? Going to school is a big thing. Mm -hmm. So when he was five and a half, he should have started kindergarten. Well, there was no way in the world he was ready to start kindergarten. So I looked up the rules and I found out that you don't have to start kindergarten before you're six years old. So I thought, right, well, he can just not go for those two terms. Mm -hmm. Then we moved to a very small town in which the school was right opposite the house. And I thought, well, that's actually really good because if we had to leave the house and go in the car and walk and go through the gates of the school and get into the classroom, those would be too many steps. At least we can go out of our gate, cross the road, we're in the school. That's, mm -hmm. that's a good start, right? Mm -hmm. So then I went to the principal and I said, here's this child, he melts down at every possibility. What are you going to do or what can you offer me? And he said, well, he was really wonderful, actually, this guy. They'd had a fair bit of experience with children with severe disabilities in this school and they were very open. Mm -hmm. So he said to me, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I'd like to, him to go to school for two hours a day, three days a week, and then see what happens after that. And he said, okay. So what we did was I didn't make him wear a uniform. If he couldn't wear the uniform that day or if he couldn't wear his shoes that day, that was fine. The most important thing was we left the house, we crossed the road, we went into the classroom. So those are the things that they were non-negotiables. Everything else around that had to be let go because sometimes it was impossible. So <laughs> many times there was a lolly shop next door to our house. Many times we would say, I would say, right, it's time to go to school, but first we'll go to the lolly shop. Now, he coped with lolly shop because everybody likes lollies. So <laughs> we went to the lolly shop. We bought the lolly. Yes. Then he'd say, let's have the lolly. I'd say, what we'll do first is we'll cross the road and then we'll have the lolly. So we would cross the road and then we would have the lolly. Well, he could now cross the road. Hooray. Mm -hmm. Then we would get in the gate and then we would get to the classroom and then he could have the lolly. So it was a matter many times of just doing that kind of thing. And I can't tell you how many times I sat on the steps of our house waiting for him to get through his meltdown about having to leave the house. So all of that took a lot of emotional effort. Mm. And what he did was he got to school and then sometimes it was quite enjoyable for him. And so he saw these other kids all coming to school, but he saw himself getting picked up and he's like, well, why am I getting picked up? I said, well... Two hours is maybe enough for you. He's like, no, I, I can do more. I can go till lunch. And so he would go, then go till lunch. And so when the pressure was lifted, he was able to want to do things himself and find the impetus himself to do things. And we found this all the way along. Oh, by the way, it took two terms to get from two hours a day, three days a week, to all day, five days a week. Oh, okay. So but by the there. end of the, I think it was the last two weeks of that kindergarten year, he was going all day. But nonetheless, he got there. It's a success story. That's right. It's a success story. So it takes a lot longer, and you do it in more steps. But we ended up succeeding. And he's now 16. It's been that way all the way along. Every time we've forced something or tried to make it happen, basically, he's been so worried about the being forced that he's fought back and then not been able to do anything. But when we, every time we've taken the pressure off and taken it in steps, he's actually come along and gone, well... Who's to say I couldn't go to the beach, for example? Mm. Or who's to say I couldn't enjoy Christmas? The breaking down has built confidence. It has built competence. And now he goes, year 11, on his own. He wants to go. He's doing his own homework. Like, he has, he's a success in life in many, many ways. Mm -hmm. Now, let's go back to you personally. 
because mm. it wasn't so successful initially for you. <laughs> I was living horrible. <laughs> yeah, what no, happened it was, to you? Look, it was really hard because I was trying to manage three children. My husband had this new ministry job. He was pretty um, busy and it was intense and he, you know, it was his first ministry job. Mm-hmm. So that was hard. And um, I basically had to get rid of everything else that was extraneous in my life and go, okay, well, this is what I'm doing now. I'm looking after a kid who melts down six times a day and trying to figure that out. So all my energy went into that. But, you know, it was harder than I thought, and I got depression. I took tablets for a period. Um, When we moved to the small town where the school was, I did start to get better, Mm. and things improved. But every time you have a loss, and I would call having a child with a disability, it has its losses built Mm -hmm. into that, because... You, every, everyone has their dreams for their child, mm-hmm. and when your child doesn't achieve, you know, X, Y, Z, at the same time as every other child achieves X, Y, Z, you feel like, oh, wow, that's a loss. And so the losses pop up, you know, throughout life and throughout the years, and you, you have a little cry about that and say, wow, this is still really hard, even though he's doing so well and even though he has friends or people like him, you know, he still didn't get to that point as quick mm-hmm. as everyone else. And I think what we found is we've only ever been able to look six months ahead for him. Mm-hmm. Like my other son, who's neurotypical, he's got lots of talent, like, like, my, like my autistic son does, he has lots of talent. But my other son, he has a big plan for his life. And you look with him and go, yeah, I can see what you're going to be doing in five years. I can see in 10 years you might be doing this and that. Mm-hmm. With our son with autism, I go, okay, in the next six months, we could probably expect this, possibly. After that, I have no idea. Who knows? That'll be up to him, a lot of it, and it'll be up to to where we are together. But we've had to work really hard as a team, him and me and, and his father, to go, okay, what's the current challenge? Let's see how we can break that down, how we can move through it, what do we want to be doing, how can we build confidence and competence? So as a parent, as you mentioned, we have expectations. So you had to yep. just throw those expectations out and say, this is going to be something different. Yep, that's right. And that's, that's really hard to do. Mm-hmm. And not only that, because everybody else has the other expectations and they're all going on their normal timeline and you're going on your mm. changed timeline and that's really hard. So it would be very easy to kind of have a pity party and get depressed. Well, I mean, that only gets you so far, doesn't it? Yeah. A pity party, <laughs> you can get stuck in that. Yeah. Or you can go... All right, let's do the work. Let's get as far as we can get and see what happens. It is what it is. We have to take it from here. That's right. And I always tell my daughter, do the work. And she's like, Mom, I know. She says if she ever gets a tattoo, it's going to be do the work because that's what I tell myself (laughs) and that's what I tell her and that's what I tell all of them. And so you went through a very dark period spiritually. Is that right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. God is nice. You know, he picks you up and goes, it's all right. I'm still here. Hmm. But it it was pretty hard. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sort of, I'm not there anymore, so I, you know, you forget about the hardness of things sometimes, mm-hmm. you move on, and it's not hard anymore, but yeah, he he um, kept me when I didn't feel like being kept, I would say. Yeah, I was going to say, if somebody's listening today, and maybe they have uh, a child with a disability or something that they can relate to from your story, and they're maybe in that dark place now, what advice would you have for them? Just keep on. Keep on. Um, find someone who'll who'll love you and let you cry about it, 
and not try and tell you that everything's all right because everything's not all right. Mm-hmm. That's a fib, and people love to, love to perpetuate that fib. Mm-hmm. But you're allowed to feel bad because it is bad, and you're allowed to feel hopeless because sometimes you do feel hopeless. But then you think about what we have in life is 80 years or so, mm-hmm. and eternity is much bigger, and we're heading there. And if you take an 80-year perspective on what's coming then you can probably get through it. Mm-hmm. So finally, how is he doing today? He's doing really well. He is a self-motivated young person doing his final years of high school. He has picked his subjects. He does his homework. He has some plans and some hopes, and he knows what he likes and what he doesn't like. He's very interested in physical fitness. He can smash out 10 pull-ups on the pull-up bar, which mm-hmm. you know, I can't do. <laughs> yeah. And he has his likes and dislikes. He has some friends at school. And he's generally generally a happy, well-adjusted person who's going to do something cool in life. Fantastic. Was it looking that way for a while? No, it wasn't looking that way for a while. It wasn't. As I said, we can only look six months ahead. Mm-hmm. And six months ago, I was worried. And six months before that, I was worried. And six months before that, I was even more worried. But you can't stay in worry. That's the trouble. Mm-hmm. You can only go, what is the problem that's presenting itself today? Let's work on that one and break it down. Mm-hmm. And all those things have a cumulative effect. So you work on helping him to self-regulate when he's 12 and when he's 14 and when he's 16, 17, suddenly, oh, I know how to self-regulate. I can go and do that. Mm-hmm. And all those things that you've been working on over the years, they add up, they make a difference. One of the biggest things that we did which has really helped him was to have a big focus on diet and supplements. So we found this doctor in Sydney who uh, took him off dairy, took him off gluten, took him off soy, took him off preservatives, a whole lot of things, and who put him on things like zinc and SAMe and fish oils and Mm. a whole raft of supplements. And my goodness, do they cost a lot, but wow, do they work. Wow. Massively, they have helped him calm down. I think when he was six, we had him on some really strong medication, which another pediatrician put him on. And, and you know, that helped mm-hmm. because that did calm him down in some situations. But that's really strong medication that I don't want my child to be on for the rest of their life. It's yeah. much better to be on fish oil. Yeah. So working out all of that, and, you know, it's, it's a hard for a kid to have a funny diet and nobody likes it. Yeah. But he understands and he knows how it feels for him when he eats those things which don't do him any good and when he doesn't take his tablets. And I would say she's been really a huge part of our miracle. So if you're interested in learning more about the diet and the supplement side of this sort of therapy, a good place to start is a website called mind.org. It's M-I-N-D-D dot O-R-G. And that talks a lot about the effect of different food on brain health and the effect of gut on brain health and, um, and thinking and all those sorts of things. So definitely a good place to start. Any final comments you'd like to share with our listeners today? Oh, any final comments? Oh, I have so many final comments. Um, I would say keep breaking things down for your children if they're struggling. So my son is now a moderately successful year 11 student, which means in my eyes he is like the bomb. He is the ace of all Mm. year 11 students because he has struggled to get this far and he'll continue to struggle, but, but, he can do it if you're with him and if you do the teamwork that's required. Don't give up. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. That's all right. It's a pleasure. 
That was Eric Scadabo chatting with author Cecily Patterson from Sydney. And as we heard, today's conversation focused on her book, Love, Tears and Autism. To find out more about this book and others by Cecily, you can visit her website, cecilypatterson.com. That's cecilypatterson.com. Also, if you can identify with some of the struggles that Cecily has gone through as a parent of a child with a disability and would like someone to pray with and be encouraged with, our prayer line is one 800 Pray for me. That's one 800 We'd love to pray with you on that number, one 800 Finally, we'll end with some words of encouragement from the Bible. In the book of Isaiah, where God tells us, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you with my righteous right hand. That's right, no matter what we're going through or how difficult the journey God is always there to rely on and to uphold us through it all. Well, thanks for joining us for part two of Cecily Patterson's story. I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.